don't get discouraged to, you know, the other founders out there. Like if you have a cool idea, just because, you know, people who seem smart on the internet don't get it doesn't mean it's not a good idea. Hey everybody, Tanner here with Wagme Ventures. On today's episode, we have John Crane, co-founder and CEO of Super Rare Labs. For anyone who's new, this is the Wagme Ventures podcast, where we do snapshots with interesting founders from across Web3. Check out wagmeventures.io to learn more about the syndicate behind the podcast. But for now, let's get into it with John at SuperRare. All right. Hey, everybody. I'm here today with John Crane, co-founder and CEO at SuperRare Labs. John, how are you doing today? Doing great, Tanner. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm really pumped to chat. So, you know, really just to start, I always like to just kind of ask, what brought you to founding and building SuperRare Labs? What was that journey like? And and even really, you know, how did you get into sort of the crypto space to begin with? Yeah, I'll try to keep it short. It was certainly a, a meandering path with lots of different twists and turns. But yeah, I mean, I guess I'll start with crypto. So I actually had the pleasure of taking a like a GE econ class in the fall of 2008, which was an exciting time to be in an econ class. And I actually had no interest in finance or anything like that. But our teacher, who was generally a super friendly, positive guy, came in one day and he was he was like, these bankers, they're criminals, like they need to go to jail. And he was like very fired up. And I was like, oh, this is way more exciting than possible. <laughs> and that kind of led me down a rabbit hole of just thinking about money and how it works. And I got super interested in Austrian economics and started learning about, you know, gold-based currency systems and all all that kind of stuff. And then fast forward a few years, I was, you know, I was maybe like five years later or so. I was living in New York. I was working in advertising. You know, my background's in kind of like art and tech. I studied, you know, structural engineering and architecture in my undergrad. And I was going to meetups and one of the meetups I found was the Bitcoin meetup in New York. And I was like, this, you know, money based on math sounds you know, better than, than money based on people's opinions. And so I started learning about Bitcoin and slowly fell down that rabbit hole. You know, it was more just an intellectual curiosity than, you know, a big investment for me at the time. But it, it just got more and more excited. And from there, I kind of saw... Uh, you know, the early developments with Ethereum, which I was excited about, but also skeptical. I think I was I was more of an Ethereum hater until the network actually launched. And then I was like, okay, I guess they're right. This is extremely cool and it's working. So I worked with Consensus, the you know, Ethereum Venture Studio in New York for a couple of years, which was super exciting. I met lots of great people. I learned a ton. And, you know, for me personally, what I was always really... What I was most excited about with, you know, Web3 and Bitcoin and just this idea of programmable money was that, you know, we were going to be able to build kind of new internet native business models that we hadn't, you know, that this technology would enable activities that were not possible. And, you know, not really being a finance guy, like I was much more interested in consumer tech. I was also, you know, living in New York, I had friends who were trying to make it personally as artists. So looking for gallery representation and I was, you know, going to art fairs and collecting art as a hobby and started developing this thesis that eventually people would be able to sell digital art. Because at the time, 
digital art was sort of this obscure subset of the art market. You know, it's kind of an awkward transaction. You're buying like a, a thumb drive and a screen, but you could still copy the art. And like, it, it was just a very, you know, it felt like it could be streamlined. And so I had to, you know, just in the back of my mind, I was like, it's, at some point, someone's going to figure out a business model around this and it's going to be really interesting. And then, so, you know, I was at Consensus, I'm, you know, pretty following along with lots of the Ethereum updates. And I see, you know, this, this new GitHub post for ERC721. It's kind of like a formalized standard for unique digital objects. And I was like, oh, this is super interesting. You know, we've just kind of gone through ICO summer and that was crazy. But was really interesting, or I thought was really interesting, was that there was this very simple technical standard that had kind of fueled this revolution in crowdfunding. And you know, it's like if you look at the the code for ERC twenty tokens, there's not a whole lot there. Right? It's a very simple concept, but the fact that all the wallets and exchanges adopted the standard made it really powerful. And so I kind of extrapolated you know, this. I was like, well, if we have a standard for unique digital objects, which you know, unique digital objects are kind of the foundation of all of the consumer internet, and this gets adopted, that's going to be insane. Like that's like it's going it's going to be totally crazy. And so I, you know, decided that's what I wanted to focus on. And so I left Consensus. I started prototyping, and you know, kind of decided to focus the things that we were building on art, just because that was personally most interesting to me. And I felt like there was really, a, you know, a really strong need, right? There's a lot of talented digital artists, but there was no market for the work they were creating. So that's kind of the, the long, how we got here story. Yeah, I love it. Okay. So, you know, Super, obviously a very known entity, but for anyone who has somehow missed what Super Rare is, could you maybe kind of given your words kind of in its totality, what is Super Rare? Yeah, absolutely. So Super Rare is a digital art marketplace. And, you know, we've focused on curation from the beginning. So we've taken a different tack than you know, other players who kind of came before and after and have put a lot of work into the curation of the artists on the platform. So it's, you know, it's not curated in that, you know, we review each piece of art that goes up. But there's a vetting process, so you know that the work you're looking at is authentic, right? Like trust and authenticity work for to kind of the product offering. And we've also you know, differentiated in that each piece of art is a, a one-of-one unique art object and not like an addition of a thousand. So everything you see is authentic, and there's only one of them on the platform. Got it. Super interesting. So... You know, you mentioned some of those players that came before and after. That was one thing I was really curious about is because, you know, you guys really did pioneer sort of this, what you guys are doing. And I guess I'm curious, how has that evolved over time as the space got more crowded? How did you guys think about differentiation and kind of staying true to what you're about? I'm curious what those conversations sounded like. Yeah, it was, you know, it's been really interesting. You know, the JPEG summer was, it was very tempting, right? We were seeing these crazy PFP collections launch and explode into like, you know, tens of millions, not hundreds of millions of dollars in volume. But, you know, my, we kind of are kind of like one of our core hypotheses is that this, you know, digital art market, which I think is a new market, right? It's, it's adjacent to contemporary art. We're not, you know, 
going to take market share from the existing art market. This is a market expanding technology as is a new market. And it's going to look similar, like there's going to be similar features, but it, you know, it's going to be focused on, you know, what we think is art, right? I think there's a very strong use case specifically for art. And so, so instead of expanding into like gaming and metaverse land and some of these other things, like we really tried to tailor the user experience to digital art. And you ask kind of how we've innovated or like, you know, what we're thinking about, how we think about the competitive landscape. Really what's made super special, I think, is, you know, this focus on trust and authenticity and kind of being a layer for discovery. So if you think about, you know, what this market looks like, you know, 10 years from now, I think there's going to be trillions of NFTs. And so this kind of trust and authenticity layer, this you know, curation layer and discovery layer is going to be incredibly valuable. And, and, you know, so we've put a lot of effort into trying to think through how we can grow the market and then also how we can really tailor the discovery experience to artists and collector needs. And something interesting that we recently kind of proposed, I guess one important thing to note is the summer of 2021, so Super Rare helped launch a DAO. It's called the Rare DAO and you know, launched a native token. And so far to date, this token has been used to have the community kind of democratically elect new curators. And so you know, this is an interesting experiment in scaling curation. We felt like this wasn't going to scale through kind of algorithmic curation. Like, you, you know, if you think about YouTube and they're you know, algorithmically curating videos for you. But there's something special with art where the human element is pretty important. And so we started adding the ability to add curators into the network, which are kind of voted on with the other mirror token. And then recently proposed a new discovery, sort of, it's not algorithm, but just like a new discovery concept that allows individuals to kind of build a social graph with the rare token by locking them up for creators and collectors. So, you know, you, Tanner, maybe you're into, you know, generative art, but you also follow, you know, you have some other friends who are collectors. You can go lock up rare tokens on different addresses in the ecosystem. And then that can be used as kind of this cross-platform discovery layer or this cross-platform social graph that I think uh, is really needed in the space. So like if you look at the landscape, when we first launched, there were no minting tools. We were one of the first marketplaces. Now there's you know, thousands of minting tools, hundreds of marketplaces, and, but it's still a relatively fragmented market. So there's you know people on different platforms. A lot of the social coordination happens through Twitter and Discord. And so we've been thinking a lot about this, you know, discovery kind of problem. And, you know, we're calling this rare staking. I think it's a really interesting exploration into like, you know, if you think about what NFTs did, we sort of put content on chain in a really interesting way. See, it's like we have just like we have, you know, Instagram posts, content generation, but you might also have like sort of meta discussion happening on Reddit where there's like upvotes and things happening, kind of like meta conversation happening around a post. With this rare staking model, it's sort of an exploration into like, okay, what if we start putting some of these other aspects of communities on chain? And 
I think this is going to be really interesting. So, so far the feedback's been super good. The community is pretty excited. And, you know, I think at some point later this summer, the DAO will vote and decide whether or not we actually want to implement this kind of like new rare staking model that would allow you to build this on-chain social graph. Yeah, super cool. This is awesome because you actually, you touched on a lot that I was, I was curious about from the outside. So maybe just kind of plucking one at a time where, you know, taking a step back on, on the progressive decentralization and the DAO and the token. I'm curious, can you maybe talk a little bit about that experience and and what you guys learned really empowering your community in that way? Because that's ultimately the goal, right? For so many of these projects, you want to get to the place where it's community owned, community run. And I'm curious if you just have any generalizable lessons for any builders out there and your, or founders, just anyone kind of in the space for how that looked for you guys and how you guys were thinking about that. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a lot of work. And I would say like definitely focus on you know, trying to find whatever you define as product market fit, right? I think if you, you know, because as soon as you launch the token and like there's a DAO, like there's a whole nother layer of you know things to think about. And so like other concerns that aren't really the core customers, right? It's, you know, it's like we're reimagining how communities organize and like what ownership looks like in this context. So I would say definitely focus on the customer, refine the product to a place where, you know, kind of like growth is happening naturally. And then I think that's a good time to, you know, start thinking about like, what does decentralization look like? So that's certainly something we did. I would say there's definitely, you know, think a lot about the governance process. I think, you know, that's something we probably could have done better is like a little bit more upfront work with the community, kind of like outlining how governance works, you know, thinking through exactly what you want to be governed. So I think, you know, for the, the rare DAO and the super network, really, I think where governance is going is like really managing kind of the core aspects of, you know, what we call the protocol, which is kind of like the smart contracts that are on chain and then the state that's inside of those smart contracts. Things like, you know, what should the royalty rate be on super rare? Do we want to allow like new NFT types, you know, out of like, open editions or something like that, right? This is something the community feels strongly about, wants to govern. Like you want to, it's a, de- it's like a delicate balance between you want you know, people to be able to move quickly, but then at the same time, you also want the community on board and like to have kind of like proper transparency around the decision-making that happens. And so I think if you first kind of nail the product and the use case, that gives you a little bit more leeway to you know, experiment at kind of like the DAO and token layer where there's less of prior art. And so you're, you're, you know, having to make lots of decisions where you won't really know what the impact is or if it was the right decision until you've already made it. And it's kind of like out in the wild. Yeah, super, super interesting. So, you know, earlier you mentioned the kind of this 10 year timeline for the space of digital art. And I loved hearing you anchor on 10 years because it's, it's the space changes so quickly, right? So like, two years is a long time, five years is, you know, forever, 10 years is kind of an eternity, right? So I'm curious, both for super rare and kind of what you already touched on a bit, but the world of digital art, like, where do you see things going? Are there any interesting trends or concepts, any anything interesting going on from your vantage point that people might just not be generally aware of that you could kind of speak from the future about? Yeah, absolutely. I think, 
you know, right now we're yeah you know, we're in the bear market. The the SEC is going after Coinbase and Binance, and so I think it's easy. You know, it's morale is is down. I would say you know people are like are it's like our NFT is dead. Is crypto dead? I mean, a lot of the sentiment that for folks who've been around have you know, heard before, but you know, it can really feel real. Real, like people are like, oh my god, is this actually a thing? And I can say from the art perspective, I would say as a whole, like if you look at kind of like aggregate user numbers, so not volumes, but just like the number of collectors, the number of artists, it's still growing. So, you know, I think like there's obviously like crazy numbers that happened mid-summer 2021. But as far as like our collector numbers go and artist numbers, like those numbers are growing. And even from kind of like the larger institutional audience in art, right? Like we saw the Pompidou, which is for folks who don't know, it's kind of like a famous contemporary art museum in Paris, right? They just accepted NFTs, a number of which are super NFTs into their permanent collection. It's a super big deal. The LACMA, the LA Museum of Contemporary Art also accepted a bunch of NFTs into their permanent collection. And, you know, this isn't something where like anyone can make a piece of art and you know, gift it to a museum and they'll ex- accept it, right? There's That means the boards at those organizations thought a lot about this, approved their brand being associated with NFTs in the press. And it's really a big step forward. So I think, you know, while we're going through, you know, kind of just, you know, another hype cycle, as far as like actual adoption goes, it's, you know, it's still happening. And, you know, I think it'll be something similar to Bitcoin, right? If you think about, NFTs have been around for about five years now, and you know Bitcoin's you know, going like thirteen years or fifteen years, whatever it is. And the institutional adoption is just slow and steady, right? These people have no incentive really to be first adopters. They want to make sure that this is actually going to stick around. And so I think, kind of from that more established, you know, art institution, kind of like household name galleries. We're still seeing a lot of, you know, we're seeing growing traction in the NFT space and people are very interested uh, in this market. So I'd say there's still healthy, healthy growth. That's pretty exciting to see. Yeah, super interesting. So uh, about a week and a half ago, you announced on your Twitter a super cool collab between Alan Bolton and Dead Mouse, And that got me thinking just really about like, you know, can you tell the audience a little bit about you know, this drop in particular, but also how do these collaborations come about? Is this something maybe the network of the DAO coordinated or is this, is it different? How does that all work? Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that, you know, they came up with on their own. Right. And I think, I mean, this is a really interesting area where the overlap between, or I guess the barrier between sort of like artistic genres is, you know, coming together or like, you know, there's, there's less distinction, right? So I think we're seeing, there's a very interesting trend in music where like music has always had a visual art component. If you think about, you know, CDs or tapes or records, right? Like the album art was always a big part of helping to set the tone and the vibe for whatever the music was. Yeah, music videos too, of course. Yeah. Right, exactly. And if you think about that business model, the art has kind of always been or the visual art has been an expense, right? Where if you think about going on tour, you're like, okay, well, I'm going to pay, you know, the VJs to do all the like projection mapping and all this stuff. And, you know, it's really an expense 
for the production of the show. And now we're seeing this kind of flipped on its head with NFTs where we're saying, wait, you know, what if instead of a spank and expense, we really helped highlight the visuals and made them an important part of this experience. And so you're kind of seeing these collaborations. And so one in particular, you know, Anima is really interesting case study where all of the visuals for each of their shows where they do, you know, they kind of do custom visuals that go with the music for a specific show are also auctioned off on super rare. And so there's a really, you know, like the line between fine art and kind of like pop culture and music, it, you know, like a lot of artists are playing with this in a really interesting way, which is super exciting. Cause again, I think what's really powerful about all this technology is, you know, letting creatives, you know, experiment, try new business models, and ultimately, you know, take home more at the end of the day. Yeah, I love it. That's super, super interesting. So, okay, John, maybe a couple last questions here. You know, one question that's become kind of a recurring one on the podcast is if I were to ask you, the future of crypto is blank, how would you fill in the blank? You know, we've touched on this some for digital art, but I'm curious just for the space in general, you know, how do you feel like the future is if you had to kind of just comment on it? Yeah. I think, I mean, it's a very good question. I mean, for me, I think it's always been about finding kind of this like internet native value transfer. And, you know, I think we're getting closer, right? There's still, there's a lot of experimentation happening. Obviously people are still building, but ultimately I think that's what's really powerful, right? If you think about, you know, Bitcoin being kind of like the first digital money, like non-bank digital money, you know, trustless. So it's like, you know, reinventing value transfer with super rare and art, right? It's, you know, putting a certificate of authenticity on chain allows people to have, you know, a trustless auction where like, you know, there's no middlemen, the, the artwork and the funds for the auction are custody in a smart contract that's, you know, going to ex- execute deterministically. And so I think there's, you know, lots of value created in lots of different ways. And I think Crypto is kind of reimagining, you know, the sort of certification and transfer of value, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so another kind of taking a step back question. Any advice from your, you know, pretty extensive, especially in crypto years, experience in the space? Like, what advice would you have for other founders who are kind of just getting started in this space? And maybe two kind of related, like, what would you wish to impart to yourself when you were at the beginning? Because you, you know, when you launched Super Rare, you did have some knowledge already, you were already working in the space. So I'm curious, any kind of especially salient lessons from kind of like those, those after the founding years that you'd wish to impart that might be useful for others to hear? Sure, I think I mean, I guess one would be, I guess without, it was like, what value would I impart to myself and what to other founders? Is that the question? Yeah, yeah, basically, yep. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, to myself, I think there were, you know, when you're starting something new, it's it's really hard, right? And I think you know, the when we launched Super Rare, no one was excited. It was like the, you know, most previous crypto winter and people were just like, what are you doing? Like art and crypto, like crypto's dead and like nobody ever makes any money doing art. Like this is a horrible idea. Like, yeah, I think I got 150 no's before we ended up getting a seed round, which was like, you know, two years after we had started the project. So, you know, I think don't get discouraged to, you know, the other founders out there. Like if you have a cool idea, just because, you know, people who seem smart on the internet don't get it doesn't mean it's not a good idea. 
I think if you're really passionate about a, a concept and you have a unique insight, I think, you know, don't listen too much to other people. Just start, you know, get customers. I think that was for us. Like when we launched, we immediately had artists and collectors using the platform. Granted, I was like getting them all via email and calling people and getting my friends to use the product. But, you know, if you have conviction, I think go for it. And then advice to me would probably be, you know, like we were super early. And so those first few years were really tough, but it also, you know, like you, when you're in the trenches, you're like, oh my God, somebody launched a new product or they launched a new feature. And it's like, you feel like everything has to happen right now. And, you know, in retrospect, yeah, like we like certainly like rushed things due to kind of like perceived competitive pressure when, you know, if we had just kind of stayed focused, more focused on the customers and like the artists and collectors who are in the community versus like worrying about what competitors are doing. Yeah, I think we probably, yeah, saved ourselves some time and, and energy. So yeah, I guess to other founders, you know, follow your intuition and your gut, even if you know, people don't get it right away. And then to myself, you know, stay focused on the customers and not the competition. Yeah, I really, I really, really like that advice because, I mean, it's, it's almost a cliche at this point to hear bear markets are great for building, there's less distraction, et cetera. But no one really kind of tells you the flip side of that coin, which is that like, there's no distraction slash you, you kind of have to cultivate a certain psychology because people aren't interested in it at that moment, or it is quiet. So it feels maybe a little lonely, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I, I think that should be also, you know, anytime anyone says bear markets are for builders, I think they should also say like, and, you know, be prepared to try and like, you know, actively not be discouraged. Yeah. So I, think, I think it's great advice. So, okay, John, last question here. What is your team working on right now? And what's the best way for people to kind of follow along on the journey? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, as I mentioned earlier in the call, we proposed this new model where like kind of like, you know, using Rare as an interesting on-chain social graph and, you know, you know, follow along Super Rare Twitter, just at Super Rare is a good place to do that. If you, if people are interested in kind of the new kind of token mechanics and for the folks who might want to read a white paper, you can check out rare.xyz. That's got links to the white paper and also a little prototype that uses the smart contracts that we put together. And yeah, I'm excited. I think, you know, on-chain discovery and curation is going to be, you know, very impactful for the entire kind of NFT ecosystem. So I uh, would love for people to to, to read the, the white paper and then, you know, feel free to slide into my DMs. I'm a super John on Twitter as well. Perfect. John, thank you so much for the time. This is super insightful and really great to hear kind of your perspective and also your experience. So thank you so much for coming on and have a great rest of the week here. Awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me, Tanner. Take All care. Right. Take care.